0: Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. You guys can have a seat. My name is Scott, the lead pastor here. Delighted to have so many friends and family members here with us. We live in an age of perpetual offense. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? We're quick to judge We're quick to criticize, we're quick to condemn, and then we're quick to cancel anything that offends us. Have you noticed that? We live in a cancel culture. And the problem is in our polarized culture, we can't even agree upon what that means because One person's cancel culture is another person's holding accountable, but I just want to consider maybe this morning as we start this new series, maybe a definition, this is from dictionary.com that I think might be helpful for us as a starting place in this conversation, it says that cancel culture is the popular practice of withdrawing support or canceling, boycotting public figures, companies for something they've done, something they've said that's been considered offensive or morally objectionable. And it used to be that this was something that was done with those people that were more well known. So we'd cancel politicians, business leaders, athletes, people like that. But now, that might even be like your school teacher. That might be a a friend on social media that crosses a line and so we just like write them off. And it doesn't take much in this culture because it can be one misstatement, one misunderstanding. It could be something that, you know, it's actually very intentional. Or it could be something dumb that we said 10 years ago, and it gets retweeted. A person can live with integrity for years and years and years, and one foolish step, one sinful step, and now we write them out. And the tragedy, and we know this, like the tragedy is it's not just public figures, our friends and it can even be our family members as well there's family members that we don't speak with because we don't like the way that they vote maybe or maybe because what they followed on social media there was a disagreement with a single issue and now there's this rift and we completely distance ourselves from someone and it and it doesn't even have to be like huge things it can be things like well she looked at me weird right, or, or they didn't like my post, they didn't comment on it, or they never respond to my text messages, and I texted them that one time, and I know that they were going to respond, because I saw three little bubbles pop up on the screen, but then they never finished, and they ghosted me, and so I'm done with them. I'm just writing them off, and isn't it true that social media has just exaggerated and exacerbated the whole situation, right, because it's not that people weren't boycotting in the past, because they were, It's that we have the almost instant access to declare before we discern. We have the ability to judge someone and let everybody know like that. And we can put it on social media, we can post it to Instagram, we can send that article, we can send out that text. And anyone can tell you anything and you make this immediate judgment and you post this link faster than the time that it takes to learn the nuances of the situation. Sometimes the truth of the matter. The challenge in our culture is that we value self-realization and self-expression more than we value self-control. The way I put it in my notes is this, is that our access to power and influence and judgment is faster than our access to knowledge, wisdom, and ultimately relationship. We have this platform where we can, dis- like we can voice our disapproval, our disdain of someone or something that they did or something that they said long before we ever access knowledge and wisdom and long before we can ever step into relationship. I have a pastor friend of mine, he's coached me, he's spoken to my life. He told me something that I'll never forget. He said, wisdom and understanding go hand in hand. So if you wanna have wisdom in your life, seek understanding in the situation and wisdom will go with it. The problem with cancel culture is that we make statements that impact somebody else long before we've ever applied knowledge and the wisdom that comes with it. And long before we've ever had caution with our words. And listen, we know this, especially when we voice our disdain about someone, it almost always hurts the other person. And then, if it comes out that maybe we weren't understanding the facts correctly, it ends up hurting us as well. Now, it would be really easy to think, well this is something that other people do out there, like this is like not a church issue. But like newsflash, guys, like. The church has been at the leading edge of cancel culture. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, like we were really good at this. There were church organizations that would publish manuals about all the companies that should be boycotted. So like Disney would do a thing and we would cancel Disney and then J.K. Rowling would come out with a book about some wizards and so we'd cancel her. We even tried to cancel the Beatles. The church has been at the front end of this entire thing. Quick to cancel those who are morally out of line. See, guilt, what guilt does, guilt says what you've done is out of alignment, but cancel culture says who you are is wrong. Cancel culture is dangerous because it leaves no room for redemption, leaves no room for someone to change, it leaves no room for grace, leaves no room for someone to grow, and one small misstep, And you're treated as someone who's unworthy of love, unworthy acceptance. You said something that ticked me off or my tribe off, and so here's what I'm going to do. Those were hurtful to me. I want you to feel the same level of hurt that I experienced, so I'm going to tighten the screws on you. I'm going to cast you aside out of relationship, and I'm not just going to cancel what you said, but who you are what you've said, what you've stood for has created a debt and I'm going to hold it against you and I'm never going to release you for that. And as a result, you know what that does? It doesn't leave anyone the opportunity to repent or change and there's no room for redemption. So the question is this. Look, As, as a church, as people who would say, I want my life to honor God How do we relate to this topic of cancel culture? Because we can't control them, but we can control us. How do we deal with it when there's sinfulness outside of the church? How do we deal with it when there's sinfulness in our relationships? How do I handle it when there's sinfulness in me? How do we get along with each other? Is cancel culture the best and only option? Is that what God would have from us? In the coming weeks, as we start this series on cancel culture, we're going to step into some of those more intricate, detailed aspects of this. When someone wrongs you, what do you do with that? The people that are outside of the church that are maybe screaming at or thinking, hey, this is a, a, a way to act, and we might not agree with it. How do we interact with that? But this weekend, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we are starting from the right starting point as a church. Now, one of the things I enjoy doing with my family every once in a while is I enjoy going backpacking with them. And so whenever we go backpacking, I go to the backpacking store and I buy one of these maps, these waterproof maps, because on this map, what it does is it shows me the, the trail and it shows me like where water sources are, it shows me where I can camp, it shows me the topography, how far the distance is, all of that, but this is worthless without one critical piece of information. And that is, where, where are we starting from? Where am I at on this map, and where do we start from, and what's the direction that we should actually be heading? And as a church, in this conversation, there's a fundamental truth that if you don't hear me say anything else this weekend, it's this one thing that we want to unpack. It's that when, when God thinks about us, when God thinks about our sins, His desire was never to cancel people. His desire was only ever to cancel sin. He didn't want to bring about people's ruin. He wanted to bring about their redemption. That's our starting place as a church. When we think about how we interact with people that have wronged us seriously, maybe just annoyed us temporarily or superficially, and how we interact with other people in relationship, that God did not come to cancel people. He came to cancel sin. You know, there's, there's one person and there's lots of people. Really, when you think about the Gospels and you think about the Bible, maybe you have a view of what the stories are about, that they're all these people that had their act together, that they were the most holy of individuals, these stories about them. But if you actually peel back the layers in Scripture, you'll find out that these are some of the most flawed people that you'll ever find. In truth, saints rely on the grace of God more than anybody else. And there was one person, the Apostle Paul, who it meant so much to him because when he thought back on his life as he's writing us some letters and he's looking back on who he used to be, he realized that he was a person who was active in trying to cancel other people that were on the other side of an aisle of a situation that he was involved in. He was was very aggressive about that and then he can look at his own life and see these things where places where he has failed, where people had every expectation and right to cancel him, and yet he experienced this foundational truth that allowed him to navigate some of these temptations that we'd have when someone fails us to to cancel them. It allowed him to navigate that with grace because he experienced God cancel, not who he was, but God cancel his sin. So this weekend, I want to just look at that. And Paul actually speaks some words to us, church, about how we could interact with this topic and this content here. So uh, if you uh, have an orange Bible underneath you, we're going to start in Galatians. It's page 795 in the orange Bible, 795 in Galatians. And what Galatians does is Paul tells the story. He just quickly tells the story about kind of his cancel background. Galatians chapter one, verse 13, this is what he says. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. He's writing to these Christians. He's saying, hey, listen, guys, like my rap sheet is kind of long and you know about it. Like who I used to be was I was this really uh, religious person, really zealous. I was in Judaism, the, the, the religious system of the early, uh, like first century Uh, Jews from Judea, in Galilee, in these spaces, right? I was in that, he says. He goes on and he says, for you have heard about that, how intensely I persecuted the church and how I tried to destroy it. He thinks back on his training, he says, I was advancing in this Judaism, in this religious system beyond many of my own age, among my own people, And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. See, when when Jesus stepped onto the scene and the church starts growing, this was a great threat to the the Judaism and the religious leaders at the time. And so they were very anti-Christian. In fact, they weren't even called Christians at that time, they were called followers of the way because we're like, who is this guy who claims to be a Messiah? And so they wanted to snuff that out. And Paul, as this young, I just picture him, probably young 20s, like ready to make his mark on the world, he went out and he went out to arrest Christians. He would go into towns, he would find them, he'd break up their meetings, he would take their property, he would split up families, he would throw them in jail. And one of the earliest Christian leaders that we read about in some of these historical accounts was a guy named Stephen. And Stephen was arrested because, not because he was doing anything wrong. I mean, he was being kind to the poor, all the things Jesus asked him to do. He was standing up for the marginalized. But he was proclaiming who Jesus was in these communities. And, and they arrested him and they condemned him to death by stoning because he wouldn't recant his belief that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. And so Stephen is being hauled out, out of the city, out to the outskirts of the city. And the crowds are coming with him and they're, they're angry and they're ready to kill him by stoning. And this isn't like mm, stoning, right? This, this, is, this is like picking up rocks and bashing him to pieces. And so it was a bloody, horrible situation. And Acts tells us that Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a young man, zealous, he was there, and not only was he giving approval, but when the crowds were like, hey, this is hard work, beating someone to death. I don't want to get sweaty. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get their blood all over my coat. Here, Paul, hold my coat. And Paul was sitting there, and he's giving approval for all of this Could you imagine, could you imagine the early church hearing about this guy, Paul, and he wants to come near? Like, he makes an appointment with you? He was arresting Christians. He was responsible for that kind of atrocity, and there would have been tremendous suspicion. Paul, Paul said this, hey, you guys have heard about that background. You know that part of me I understand why you would have every reason to cancel me, but this is what he says in the next verse in verse 15. He says, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Now, that's a stained glass word. That's a churchy word, but what, here's what it means. It means it was God's goodness, not anything that Paul did. God's riches poured out on Paul at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, poured out on Paul. He says that his grace was poured out and he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now this is fascinating. Reveal it in me, not just to me, but in me. See, something inside Paul had to change that took this venomous, zealous, out of control, persecutor of Christians. Something had to get in there and do a work in him to change what was happening on the inside. This this lasting change had to happen. He says, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, how did that happen? How did God do something in his heart? Well, the book of Acts tells us that as he was going from one town to another to arrest more Christians, he's like on the back of his donkey or something, I don't know, and all of a sudden this bright light blinds him and in the darkness and in the chaos he's freaking out and he hears this voice from heaven Saul Saul that was kind of his given name why are you persecuting me and he's just saying who who are you Lord and the voice again he can't even see the voice that he hears says I am Jesus the one that you're persecuting and then Jesus speaks to him and says hey listen Paul you've been doing your own thing now you're gonna do my thing. And you, Paul, are going to go and you're going to preach to the Gentiles. <laughs> it's like record scratch. I just heard Paul like, arguing with Jesus for a little bit, like, no, hold on, Jesus. Like, I'm really Jewish. Like, I'm really Jewish. I'm like the most Jewish. Like, we don't hang out. That's just the way it was back then. They just don't hang out with people that weren't Jewish. You don't understand, Jesus, they're on the other side of the aisle do you know how they vote? Do you know that they actually maybe help the Romans and the Romans are bad to us? Do you know that like they're, they're godless pig eaters? Like why would I want to be around them? And, and Jesus goes, yeah. So you were vile and, and, and you were out of line and you were on the other side of the aisle of me and I've given you forgiveness and I've called you, I've given you grace. I could have canceled you but I didn't, Paul they're ungodly but so were you. You were my enemy and here's what I'm doing, I'm gonna cancel your debt, your debt is paid and the same way that I looked at what you did and canceled that and brought you close, I want you to now be my representative to go and tell other people and that was Paul's message as he as he encountered Jesus, and it's really fascinating when you look at the accounts because he's, like he had a pretty bad reputation. Could you imagine him showing up at your church? Like that would be, could you, it'd be like ISIS, like all of a sudden showing up outside the door. Like there would be some major suspicion. And in fact, uh, the book of Galatians tells us that it was, he waited three years before he ever went and spoke with the apostles in Jerusalem. And then he went out into the desert for another 14 years. It was 17 years before he ever had an audience with the church. Evidently, there's trust that he had to establish. But that was his message as Paul went on from there. His message was, listen, we're not going to think about people now in our world from a worldly point of view. We used to do that because we used to treat Jesus that way. We thought he was a carpenter from Nazareth, but he's not that. We used to treat him that we don't think that way anymore. So we're not gonna think of other people in that, that kind of way. So now well, our message is simply this. Hey, be reconciled to God because I know that you're not just a body. We know that you're a soul. We're not gonna think of you in a worldly kind of way. We're gonna think of you differently. And so God, you know what people, as he would have this message, he would say God doesn't want to cancel you. God wants to redeem you. God wants to restore you. He doesn't want to ruin you. And it's so fascinating to me how this kind of plays out because when we step now, I'm going to pivot, and we don't normally teach this way, but I want to kind of look at a couple of these stories about how God worked through Paul and how that instructs us. we're going to be in the book of Colossians. And as you turn there, Colossians is page 806 is where we're going to be in the orange Bible. As you turn there, Paul is actually now in jail. He's been arrested for the same thing that Stephen did. Right? He's been telling people about Jesus. He's now in jail. And as he's in jail, he finds out that there's people in the church that have been spreading misinformation about him. They've been spreading false doctrines. They've been teaching people the wrong way. And you would expect Paul to want to cancel them, but in fact, he gives some instruction to the Colossians about how we're gonna deal with people that might be on the other side of a conversation. In Colossians chapter three, verse 12, this is what he says, and it'll be on the screen. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Think for a moment about who he's talking to. This church in Colossae, that was a Gentile city. And he's reaching out and he's saying, you are God's chosen People, I I used to be an observant Jew, and I would yell at people like you, but I experienced God's grace. He's letting the gospel become available to the Gentiles, and now you used to be far away from God, but now you're his chosen people. This was a massive deal for them. You are chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and because of that, this needs to mean something in your life. He says, because you're God's chosen people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put on some virtues. In fact, this is what he says. I want you to clothe yourself with some virtues and you're gonna feel like waking up in the morning and your natural state might not be to operate this way, but I want you to put this on just like you would get up and just like you would put on a shirt in the morning, so do I want you to put on these attitudes when it comes to someone that's on the other side of the aisle, and this is what he says. I want you to clothe yourself, put on this shirt of compassion, compassion. Compassion is fundamentally a feeling. It's saying, I know what it's like to be condemned, I know what it's like to be alone, I know what it's like to look back at my life and to have regrets and to wish I would have done it a little bit differently. You feel it. You feel what it's like to be in their shoes and instead of condemning them, you have compassion for them. You look back on your life and you say, how many times did I do something stupid and I deserved something. And I never got what I deserved when I should have been this. I look back at my life and I see, I know what it feels like to be ostracized when I did that bad thing. And I have compassion for it. Like me, here now I look back in my, who I was in my 20s, and who I was in my 30s, and now I'm, in my 40s, and I look back at the person that I was and the kinds of things that would get me all wound up, that would get me all amped up and angry at somebody, and now I look back and I think, you know what, I've done that exact same thing. I, I have some life experiences now that let me operate with some compassion because you know what, I have scars and I have wounds and I've screwed up just like that and I needed grace then for who I was. And so I'm a little slower now to get wound up. And I don't get wound up a little too easily, but I'm quite a bit slower than when I was 20 or 30. He says to put on compassion. He says to put on kindness. It's fascinating, this idea of kindness is actually to see someone at their point of need and want to give them relief. Someone who is kind is fundamentally helpful. Once you, when you see someone on the other side of, an aisle, of the aisle of the conversation, do you wanna see how hard you can make it for them and their life? Or do you try to say, How how can I help them? How can I bring them relief? And it's funny that like this attribute is something that we often think, well that wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we all were together? It would be nice if we could just be kind to each other. Paul says, No, guys, this is absolutely essential. That you're kind even to those that might be An enemy. If kindness is how you have your attitude towards others, he says to put on humility, and humility is an attitude towards yourself. I'm not going to think of myself more highly than I ought. So that means I'm going to have a sober view of who I am in this conversation. You know what a sober view means? It means I'm not going to say, well, I don't care, I don't matter, I'm a worm, I'm like self-abasing. That's not a sober view. But it's also not a sober view to say, well, I'm the most important and have your pride kind of reek all over the place. But to have a sober view is to have an accurate self-view. I'm going to have humility in this situation. I, I just might not have a corner on truth. Right? That's a humble person approaches an idled situation, an aisleed conversation with humility that way. He says to put on gentleness... You know, being an ogre, being someone who's harsh, being rude has no place for a Christ follower. Are you a harsh, are you a rude person? When you have arguments with someone, how do they experience you? Would they say that you're a gentle individual? And would you be willing to step into disagreements and willfully put on the shirt of gentleness as you engage in conversation. Listen, you know, what I, you know what an ogre does? Because that can be my flesh. My flesh is to be an ogre. Like, oh, you, you, you went in the wrong direction, you didn't do it the way that I want, I'm gonna growl, I'm gonna puff up, I'm gonna let you know how much whatever I think I have. Like, that's my heart and my soul. Uh, that, that, that's my flesh that comes out. That's, that's an ogre, but you know what the psalmist says? The psalmist says a gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer actually draws in for conversation. A gentle answer is actually the more Christ-like answer. He says put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And he says put on patience. Put on patience. Gentleness casts aside rudeness. Here's what patience does. It refuses to resent someone. It refuses when they don't come around as quickly as you'd like them to. You're not gonna maintain bitterness and hang on to that in your heart. You're gonna be patient with them. You wanna know why? Because you know how many times I was just slow to get it? You know how many times I was just grateful that God was patient with me? That's what patience does. And then he says this. He says, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone. And then then Paul says something. Man, I'm telling you, this cuts to the quick. He says, forgive as Christ forgave you. Forgive just as the Lord forgave you with all that I've been forgiven of. And think about Paul. Think about Paul sitting in this seat, looking back at his early life, right? And he's thinking, man, I've arrested them. I sat, the blood was on my sandals. That is a part of me that I'm ashamed of. I wish it wasn't there. I wish nobody even knew about it. If I could go back, I would undo that. With all that God has forgiven me of, how can I do anything but forgive other people? After all, Paul would say, listen, it was God's kindness to me that brought me to repentance. And if I'm across the aisle from someone, and if indeed they're actually wrong about it, ultimately, I don't just want to be right. I want, them, I want them to come to a place where there's actual repentance involved. And it was God's kindness that brought me to that. Could you imagine what Paul just painted for us? Put on compassion, humility, gentleness, patience with one another. Bear with one another when these things pop up in your midst. Could you imagine what our community would look like? Can you imagine how the church would be experienced when they saw people who were patient with others? What a difference that would make. You know, sometimes I I, I wonder in my own heart, and I've experienced this too, where where we have a temptation to want to look at what someone else is supporting, what they're doing, and we disagree with it, and we think we are powerless to do anything about it. And so the only thing I can do is voice disapproval, cancel them, hop onto that cancel culture train. And I'm just imploring you as, as your pastor and someone who loves you in Christ, Don't give in to that. Don't drink that Kool Aid because it will kill you. It will destroy you on the inside. And here's the truth when we look at what they do and we think we have no other power to combat that, the truth is we have something so much more powerful than cancellation. We have redemption, we have forgiveness. That has to be our starting place, that God came to cancel sin. He didn't come to cancel people. Listen, this week, some of us are upset because we've been thinking a lot about cancellation and debt and loans and what all of that means. And most of us have come to this realization that, that when something is canceled, it doesn't fail to have a cost that someone has to pay that debt off it doesn't just disappear it costs someone else to carry that load of debt and here's the thing that's true for my sin too it's not like god just goes well your sin doesn't matter it's done it's not what he said he said your sin mattered so much that it had to be paid for and the only thing that could could, that could consume the debt without consuming the person was Jesus Christ because your debt would consume you. So he's paid that on your behalf so that it can be canceled, so that it can be done away with. And all of the weight of of my, every lustful thought, of every racist thought or word or ugly word that I've spoken, that's been transferred, when I believe in Christ, has been transferred onto him and he's paid that penalty by agonizing on the cross. It's actually been paid for, it, it's been canceled, it's, been, it's gone. Now, not everyone's going to accept that. and Some of you might think, I don't want anything to do with that. Listen, when Christ came on the cross, He didn't say, I'm going to find the few righteous and I'm going to destroy everyone else. He said, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world of those who would believe in me. The vilest people, the most reprehensible the outcasts, the unfaithful, the blasphemers. These were the people that Jesus so loved that he gave up his life. Think about this. As he was dying on the cross, the gospels tell us that he wasn't alone, that there was two people next to him, and one was a thief. And that thief turned to Jesus, and he believed in him. And he didn't have any opportunities to go from that place and to get his life put back together to make it right with the people that he had wronged. He didn't have any opportunity to get baptized or go to church or serve the poor, none of that. And yet Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. God came for the vilest of people. And the truth of the matter is this, that Jesus came to cancel sin. He didn't come to cancel people. In fact, that role of canceling, that that belongs to the enemy. That's Satan's work, that's not Jesus's work. Satan is our accuser and Jesus is our our defense lawyer. The Bible says this, that when we, when we step out in faith and we cross that line and we say, I'm gonna become a follower of Jesus, that we don't become perfect, but we become changed. And we can be the most jacked up person. We can be just like that thief on the cross. And when we come with humility and brokenness, and we say, I'm gonna take that exchange with Christ, and our, our debt is canceled, the heavenly realms declare that we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has The moment we're at the cross, we're not defined by what we've done. We've defined by whose we've become. And we're children of the King, the gospel teaches us. That when we believe in faith in Christ, we're adopted into his family. So listen to this. I want to show you this in 1 John 2, this description of this at work. This is what John tells us. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we haven't advocate, and that's this idea that Jesus is our defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. That's the stained glass word. That means the payment is done. There's a full payment for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And this passage is telling us that when we stand before God in the court of law and everything that's happened in our lives, and listen, like I know in my own heart, there are things I don't want y'all to know about. And I know there's things in your life you would be terrified if we found out about what was in your past. When all of those things are out in the open and you're standing exposed and raw and vulnerable before God, this is what this passage is telling us. It's telling us that, that Jesus is our judge, he's our jury, and he's our defense lawyer. I don't know how about you, but if I was ever in a criminal court of law. And I'm there with the judge and I find out he's the judge and the jury and he's the defense lawyer and he's paid my debt. Like, I want that gig. Sign me up for that. That sounds awesome. That's what we've got. And if we're gonna represent Jesus well, we need to take his role and not Satan's. Because in Revelation, it tells us that Satan goes around and he's accusing the brethren, the brothers and sisters of sin. If you want to look at that in the book of Job, it starts out and it says that he's going around the world and he's looking for someone to accuse. And he looks at Job and God has this conversation with Satan. And Satan says, The only reason he's following you is because you've done so many good things in his life. And he goes, If you just make his life not so great, then he's not going to follow you anymore. That's what Satan does. He's an accuser. He's an accuser, but Christ is our advocate. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to carry out his agenda, that's got to be what we're about to. Not canceling people, but canceling sin. And that speaks to our job here. This is kind of our second takeaway here. Not only does God not cancel people, he cancels sin, but he calls us to be recruiters and not prosecutors. He calls us to be recruiters and not prosecutors and judges. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we're sent out as ambassadors. One simple message, the message that Paul had, be reconciled to God. Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of others. I'm not asking you to go out and point a finger at everyone that does something wrong and just you be the accuser. He says, no, you go be the reconciler. Teach them about me, baptize them in my name. Teach them to obey everything I've asked you to do. That's the commission, that's our job. That's our job, and by the way, that's exactly what Paul went on to do, and every time he was in a situation where now he's being arrested and he's being persecuted, in fact, in one situation he had been jailed, he's in jail, there's this earthquake, the gates open up, all the prisoners start to flee, and when he had the opportunity to stick it to that jailer that arrested him, you know what he did? He turned around and he told him about Jesus. He wasn't there to cancel that jailer that did wrong to him. He was there to reconcile him to God. And that jailer accepts Christ. His whole family accepts Christ. That whole family then was the nucleus of the church in Philippi. They have a whole book written because of Paul was willing to not cancel a jailer. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. What is your, pers- your personal first response What is your personal first response when you hear about sinful behavior, either close up or far away? What's your first response? Do you want to reach out or do you want to write off? Do you want to pray for them or do you want to run to someone else and tell them all about how bad and wrong they were? Do you try to help them or do you try to condemn them? Because clearly, what Jesus is asking us to, if we're going to have his heart, it's going to be to reach out and not write them off. It's going to pray for them. It's going to be to pray for them and not to talk about them. And I'm going to do whatever I can as far as it's in my power to reach them and help them. And just as an aside, if anyone feels like maybe they want to be in that place of constantly being looking for when someone's out of, out of line, If you think it's your job, as one of my mentors said, to be a hyperactive spiritual watchdog and pit bull for Jesus, like if that's what you think you're called to, number one, remember whose work you're doing. Because the enemy accuses and Jesus defends. And every time we make the accusation, we're doing the devil's work and we're not doing God's work. And then here's another one that scares the daylights out of me. Remember what you're asking God to do for you. Paul said, forgive others as God forgave you. Jesus says it this way. He says in Matthew 7, don't judge or you too will be judged. Now, listen, he's not saying don't make judgments. All throughout scripture we're called to have discernment, and that can't be done unless you're looking at what's happening and asking, is this in alignment with what God's revealed to us? It's not about making judgments. It's about not standing in the seat of condemnation as if you are the judge, jury, and executioner for that individual. For in the same way you judge others, exactly how you do it to others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Hmm. You know, there's plenty of times where I'll see somebody and they're doing something I think is absolutely despicable. But before I get on a mountaintop, before I start telling everyone about how horrible it is, before I write them off, before I maybe even bring them into conversation, if we're gonna come from the place of having humility and compassion on, I have to ask myself this, have I ever done something like that before? Have I ever needed grace? Have I ever needed somebody to be patient with me? Have I ever said something like that? Because you know what we're really great at doing is when someone else is caught in the the muck of their own sin, We're really great at looking at them and saying, I would never, I would never say something so unkind. I would never be so prejudiced. I would never spend my money the way that they spend their money. Come on, you know this, I know this. I'm, (laughs) I've almost always done something just like that. We've gotta divorce that from our thought process. We have said things like that. And if we're having a harsh reaction, listen, and we're saying, hey, your apology isn't enough for me and, and, and I'm gonna judge them and I'm asking others to do that, listen, we're, we're inviting God to do that to us. That's the reason we have to say, I'm not gonna be that spiritual watchdog pit Pitbull because you know what? That's God's prerogative. That's God's prerogative. Now listen, hear me, hear me. It doesn't mean... We don't call out sin. It doesn't mean we don't call sin what it is, but it means that I don't have to get up and I don't have to tell everyone in the world how wrong they were. We don't have to come down harshly on them. We should come from this place of, I've been reconciled to God. I've been shown forgiveness. And I'm imploring you on God's behalf to be reconciled. In my heart, you have to ask this question whenever we see someone on the other side of the aisle. Do I want them to be reconciled to God? Or do I just want to tighten the screws on them? Is my heart angry? I want them to have disaster. And I want to see them sentenced to disconnection and disregard and disrespect. to Cancel them? Because listen, Jesus didn't come to cancel people. He came to cancel sin. And he calls us to be recruiters and not prosecutors. And there's this temptation to think I have no other option but to cancel. But Jesus says, man, you have the only thing, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can ever produce life change in the person that's actually worth it. I wanna invite you to come back next week. We're gonna look at some more of the details of how this plays out even in, in, in personal relationships. But as Christ followers, we have to come from this place where we start in the right location, God did not come to cancel people. He came to cancel sin. I want to pray together. I just want to respond in a moment of worship and say, Jesus, i got to start from a place of gratitude in my heart because you've forgiven me of so much. Let's pray together and then let's worship. God, what a tremendous truth it is. When I think back to my life and all the regrets that I wish weren't there, Just how gracious you've been to me when I don't deserve it. Just how gracious you've been to all of us, Lord. And I can look across this room and I know the stories that are here. And I've seen God redeem and restore and renew the brokenhearted. And God, let that be our heart. And it's so easy to be caught up in this thing called cancel culture. But may we live differently. May we not do things the way the world does. God, would you be glorified and honored through us, and God, we pray that your spirit would guide us even as we have this apt and appropriate conversation about what real renewal looks like in our lives and in our community. God, we love you. We give you praise and thanks. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.